Uh, hi there, my name is Andrew, one of the church family here at Grace Points. Uh, I want to echo Terence's welcome to you this morning. Uh, we pray that you would really feel welcome this morning. Shout out if you are new. Uh, it's my honor to open up the Bible for us this morning. Uh, there's an outline in the bulletin you should have on your chairs. Pop that and the Bible open. It'll help you follow along. But first, uh, join with me in praying to God. Father God, thank you that you show us who you are in your word. You don't leave us guessing. You want us to know you. And so we pray that you would help us to hear who you are in your word. Amen. Uh, there's this man called Ivan. He's the second of three brothers. Not as cold and formal as his older brother. Not as wild and reckless as his younger brother. He's kind of in the middle. A normal, intelligent, socially acceptable kind of guy. He goes and studies law like his father, and he does there what everyone around him seems to be doing, climbing the social ladder, hoping for greater and greater recognition at work, being around dignified and respectable people. It's there that he meets his wife, and he gets married, but not necessarily for love. It's just the thing you did at that time. And at first, it goes well. But he begins to realize as his wife becomes pregnant that marriage life seems, well, rather unpleasant. In fact, it makes life rather difficult. He resolves to invest more deeply at work. To finally get the recognition and money he thinks he deserves, he moves from place to place and he gets increases in wages, but as much as his wages increase, expenses increase all the more. And even after 17 years of working there, the promotion of his dreams passes him by, and he wonders where he went wrong. He becomes more desperate, though still within society's acceptable bounds, and finally, it happens. He gets the job that pays him what he thinks he deserves. He begins to be respected in society as he thinks he deserves. He gets a brand new house as he thinks he deserves, and he realizes something for the first time in his life, Ivan is completely happy. He finally has a life worth living. He gets on a stepladder to proudly decorate his new house when suddenly he slips. But he's still young and agile, so he catches himself, but his side hits the knob of a window. Uh, the pain doesn't seem that bad at first, he laughs it off, but in the coming months, the pain only gets worse and worse, and he goes to the doctors who give him medicine and advice, but it doesn't seem to go away. In fact, the doctors can't even work out what it is, and no matter what Ivan does, the pain only gets worse and worse. He becomes not only physically in pain, but socially becomes isolated and lonely. Mentally, he falls into anguish and despair. He always knew that all men would have to die. He just didn't realize that he himself would have to die. And he stops and wonders where he went wrong. He looks up to the decorations of his new house and realizes he's given his life for this. He had always lived for what was next and what was next and what was next until he finally realized that there were no more necks. And it was in the face of Ivan's death that he began to confront his life. 
He stopped asking what was next and started asking what is right, what is true, what is good, and had he lived a life worth living? In fact, what even was a life worth living? Uh, This is from Tolstoy's... Whoa. Sorry, Simone, you might need to help me. I'm very sorry. There we go. Everyone, say thank you, Simone. One, two, three. Thank you, Simone. I've made a life very difficult. Uh, This is from Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich. And I think it's a helpful story because in it, it's a journey of a pretty standard, relatable, mundane life. Living on the treadmill of what's next. Trying to climb the ladder of society in work and relationships when a different, unexpected ladder comes when you realize that there are no more next. Because it's sometimes only in the face of death that we consider our life. And we consider what kind of life is worth living. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians whilst he was in prison. Death has been on his mind the whole letter. And he wants his friends, the Philippians, to live a life worth living. And you and I this morning are also invited to consider what it is to live a life worth living. Before there are no more next. Uh, We'll consider what that looks like, why that life is worth living, and how that life might look. What, why, and how. Sorry, you'll need to keep going, Simone. Oh, sorry. Uh, And just like Ivan Illich, it might not necessarily look magnificent or non-mundane, but unlike Ivan Illich, it is a life lived for something bigger than yourself. But first up, what a life worth living looks like. The first word of verse 12 is therefore. And when you see a therefore, you need to ask, why is it therefore? If you go back in time to your English classes, which I'm sure you've all learned very well, you would know that therefore is an adverb. Good, good. Meaning that everything after it is a direct result of what comes before it. You won a million dollars Therefore, you're shouting everyone lunch today. I want a million dollars. Therefore, I'm not telling any of you. What Paul is about to tell us is a direct result of what we heard last week about Jesus. Because Jesus, who is God, has fully, humbly himself came to serve us. The one whose strength held up stars now holds up feet to wash. The one who knew no bounds now bound in a baby swaddle, he came and served us till death on a cross. There is salvation from our rebellion against him. The king of the universe has fully, humbly served you, and so it changes everything. Our deepest needs are met in Jesus. Therefore, the foundation of a life worth living is a salvation that is in Jesus. A life worth living is built on Jesus' salvation. And Paul says, work out that salvation right there. Note that it does not say work for your salvation. No, that is done by God alone. We're saved entirely by grace alone, but the grace that saves never comes alone. Saving grace always leads to work. As we talked about last week, the king fashions the pattern of the kingdom, and so those inside his kingdom joins the work of the king. 
The idea of working out is kind of like letting out what is already there. Like the book is already written, read the words. The path is already laid, go walk it. Uh, the seed is already planted and watered, let it grow. Uh, those illustrations are not quite perfect, but the idea is that our salvation is already achieved by Jesus. If you believe in what he has done, you are saved. Paul is saying, let the implications of your salvation come out. He has worked salvation in you, so work out the salvation that God has worked in you. If uh, two people were married, but imagine that they never stayed together. They never enjoyed the intimacy of life together never enjoyed the company of one another. Sure, they're married, the legal documents are signed, but that's not what you do when you're married, is it? It's the same with God. You're saved, so now work out your salvation. Go enjoy Him. Get to know the one who loves you. Read His word. Talk to Him about your life, your hopes, your aspirations. Go pray to Him. You've been fully served by him, your most essential needs met, so go and serve his people. Work out what God has worked in you. Continue to work out your salvation. Know him in his word, talk to him in prayer, love him in serving his people, love others in sharing who Jesus is with them. Those are some of the natural outworkings of your salvation. The life worth living is founded on salvation, working out your salvation is so good and so worthwhile because it has so many benefits with it. Have you ever stopped to consider that he has chosen you even when others don't accept you? That God has loved you even when you don't love yourself? That he has adopted you even when your own genetic family doesn't quite feel like family? Have you stopped to think that he has befriended you and never gets bored of knowing you? He has promised to walk alongside you and will never leave you. He has known every day how you will live and so never gets shocked by you, even when you might look in the mirror and be shocked at what you've done. That is just scraping the top of the iceberg of all the worthwhile, beautiful benefits in the salvation of Jesus. Enjoy them. Continue to work out your salvation. Uh, But some of you might ask, but Andrew, what about the next bits? It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, That doesn't sound so good, but I don't think it's fear and trembling as if God will punish us or judge us. I think it's the kind of fear and trembling you have when you meet someone huge and amazing. One more. There's this clip from the Jimmy Kimmel Show, and actor Adam Scott there on the left, he's talking about his childhood, and he talks about how he grew up loving Star Wars. I know there's some Star Wars lovers out there, and so what did he do? He wrote a letter to Mark Hamill, the actor who plays Luke Skywalker, inviting Mark Hamill to his seventh birthday party. Spoiler alert, Mark Hamill did not show up, but as Adam is talking on the show, The Star Wars theme begins to blaze out, and in disbelief, Adam turns in his chair, and right there, Mark Hamill walks towards him with a lightsaber, and Adam's hands are shaking. 
He is trembling uncontrollably. Here, there is an awe and joy that is uncontainable. But Andrew, what about the next bit? There is fear and trembling. And why the fear? But I think it's because God is huge and amazing, but he's also far more terrifying and wonderful than you and I can imagine. Uh, Look at those earlier verses in verse 10 and 11. It says, one day every knee will bow. Imagine for a second, every one of us here bowed our knee to the ground at the exact same time. That would be noticeable, right? Now imagine 10 more rooms doing that. Then imagine a stadium full of 1 million people doing that. Now imagine 8 billion people on earth who live right now bowing at the same time. Then imagine every person who has ever lived and will ever live bowing at the same time. Don't forget, it's not just humans who are bowing, but it's creatures on earth and under the earth. It's the spiritual realms, angels and demons bowing. I think just the sound alone of so many knees bowing at the same time would be deafening. Before every lip opens and tongue confesses, that Jesus is Lord. What a resounding, overwhelming cacophony that would be. Just the sound alone would be terrifying, overwhelming, let alone there before your very own eyes is the King who holds time together. The King who stops mountains from falling into the sea. The King who keeps the stars spinning is there right before your eyes. It would only be natural to uncontrollably shake and bow in complete reverent fear. And to know even more than that, that the one you trusted in salvation for, he is real and even bigger than you could imagine. And that he, the king of the universe, stops and looks down at you with love. That causes excitement, fearful, uncontrollable, Shaking. Working out our salvation with fear and trembling is a posture of humility. Recognizing that when we pray, we're not just talking to the neighbor next door, but to the king of the universe. And what a privilege it is that he would bend his ear to listen, to talk and relate to the God, the king of the universe who gives life purpose. That is a life worth living. But how do we do it? Well, Paul says that it is God who works in you to will and act, to do what's pleasing to him. Everything that you desire that pleases God, well, it's from God. Everything that you do that pleases God, well, it's from God. But if you stop and ask about that, you might ask, how does that all work together? We've been told to work out our salvation, to work out what God has put in, but we're also told that it's God who works in us to will and to act what is pleasing to him. Who does it? Who's working here? And the answer to that question comes from the great theological seminary, Old El Paso, <laughs> whose student once said, Porky, nolos dos. Why not both? Who puts in effort to work at our salvation? We do. Who works in us to will and to act for him? He does. Porky. Nolas dos. 
Or perhaps another illustration. Imagine you're at a playground, and there's a little girl there who says, goes up to the pull-up bar and says, Daddy, Daddy, I want to do a pull-up. And the father comes and pretty much helps her, pretty much lifts her up the entire way, and she says, Yeah, I did it. And another kid, perhaps a little jealous, comes and says, But look at her. Is she even doing anything? How do you answer that guy? Is she using all of her strength to pull herself up? Yeah, she is. Every muscle of her being. Could she do it by herself? No shot. Do we use every bit of our strength into working out salvation? Yeah, we do. Could we do it by ourselves? No shots. Some people might say, well, just let go and let God. Uh, But it's not quite right for the situation, actually. It's too passive. Paul tells us to put in the work. Other people might say, just do your best and let God do the rest. And it's also quite not right. It's not like there's this bit is your bit and this bit is what God does. No, no, God is there the entire time working in you. Paul tells them, work out your salvation. Paul also tells them it's God who works in you. Friends, continue to work out your salvation. Let the effects of that salvation already won for you flow out. Work out what God has worked in. The life worth living is built on Jesus' salvation. And the benefits of salvation are so good and so worthwhile, so enjoy it. We're over halfway in our sermon, and so far we've asked, what the life worth living is. It's only natural to ask the next question. Why is that life worth living? And Paul paints for us here a beautiful picture of that life in verse 14 to 16. He says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Uh, The picture that Paul paints has a background. And in the background, it is chaos. Imagine people hurting each other, stealing and looting. For some reason, I personally imagine that there are several Michael Bay explosions there. It's a background full of people who are completely morally bankrupt. It's a dog-eat-dog world where everyone steps on other people to get their way, where people are seen as threats to take out, where the poor are left to starve, the weak are trodden underfoot. It is ruthless, savage, and sad. But in the foreground, right in the middle of the painting, is the children of God, the church. Now, you might hear that and say, That just sounds like more chaos, and I can understand that. But the picture here shows what the church is to strive for, where because we have been fully cleansed and washed by Jesus, we are to live pure and blameless lives. Where because we have been united by Jesus, we don't grumble or argue with each other, dividing ourselves, but we are united around our King together. Where because we have been served fully by Jesus, we see the opportunity that the background around us presents. Where there is pain, we seek to soothe. 
Where there is strife, we seek to reconcile. Where there is war, we seek peace. It's an opportunity to serve and love them. And just like the night sky, we are, where the night is dark, we are meant to shine brightly like stars in the night sky. The church is meant to look different to the world. We're meant to do good for the world. So why is the life worth living for Jesus worth living? Why is it good? It is good for others. It may be as simple for us as not joining in on gossiping or bullying others. It might just be as simple as seeking to listen and understand people rather than judging them. It might be as simple as being thoughtful enough to text or ask someone how they are and really mean it, giving them your full attention. Because for someone working out their salvation, it is so natural that if you know God, you become like God. If you're like God, you love people and you love serving others. Your life models the freedom and joy of a life worth living. What do you think it might look like for yourself to work out your salvation in the dark world that you live in? How might that be good for those around you? But it's not just good for others, it's also good for ourselves. We are not made to grumble or argue. We're not made to make others our servants. We are made to know and enjoy and love God. We are adopted as God's own children. And if the one who has created humans to know and love him, then surely a life worth living is a life that lives to know and love him. It's what we're made for. It's good for us. We're made to be children of God, enjoying our loving Heavenly Father. But there's a a modifier here that tells us how to do it. Did you see it? We do all this as we hold firmly to the word of life. Because in yourself, you have no good. The good you have to offer is in God's word of life, which we're reading right now. Because most of all, in a dying, morally bankrupt, dog-eat-dog, dark world, they need life. To know the one whom they're made for. They need to know Jesus. And they can in his word of life, which we hold out. The life that is worth living holds out the word of life to a dying world. And even more astounding, it's not just good for others, It's not just good for ourselves. It's a life that's so good, it's even worth dying for too. Paul talks a bit earlier about being poured out like a drink offering for them. It was a term used to describe a priestly sacrifice. Paul being poured out means Paul is suffering or dying for them. But do you notice how Paul feels in that situation? Paul is glad and rejoicing. Wild. Why is, glad, why is Paul glad when he is in prison, being poured out as he's dying? It's because his suffering is achieving something. His suffering for sharing the gospel with them has led to the Philippians having faith in Jesus and so finding life. And now they're working out their salvation. They're willing to sacrifice themselves in serving God and others. For Paul, when you have life forever assured in Jesus, you can even be willing to die for something worthwhile. 
if you have life, but know that others who don't have Jesus await death, well, you're happy to pour yourself out to see them know Jesus and have life with you. The life that is worth living is also worth dying for too. So people who are dying would find life. As Paul famously said in the first chapter of the letter, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When you have a life worth living for, you have a life worth dying for. You have a life purpose that transcends and prevails through any life circumstance. It is good for you. It is good for others. It's good enough even to die. That's why living for Jesus is a life worth living. So let's recap so far. Where have we come? The life worth living is built on Jesus' salvation. Continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Enjoy its benefits, letting salvation's outworkings flow. It's worth living because it's good for you, it's good for others, it's good enough even to die for, so others would come and have life too. And finally, in the passage, we have two examples of how that life might look like. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Firstly, Timothy, Paul describes him with high praise. He says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. He goes on and explains, because everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, And you and I know that to be true, right? It's so natural for me, at least, to instantly jump to what I want first. That's my knee-jerk reaction. But Timothy, he's different. His knee-jerk reaction is to humbly consider others and how he might serve them. It's almost the exact same words, if you notice, as the words we read last week that Paul said. Paul encouraged them not to look to their own interests there at the top, but the interests of others. And here's Timothy. He is living that himself. Paul says that he will show genuine concern for your welfare. Timothy humbly thinks less of himself and thinks more about others and Jesus. He is not self-centered. He is other-centered. He is Jesus-centered. A life worth living is not lived for self. You know, if you were to ask people, What's the one thing you need to have to have a life worth living? What do you think they'd say? Oh, you don't need to earn a lot of money as long as you are. Oh, you don't need to have a great job as long as you are. Oh, you don't need to date someone as long as you are. Successful is what an Asian auntie would say. But my guess is that it's more likely that in your mind you answered happy. One of the great lies of this world is that your happiness is the thing that makes your life worth living. I don't know about you, but it's so hard for me to fight that desire. Even in Christianity, it's so normal to think Jesus is here to serve me and to make me happy. No. Jesus has served you, yes he has, but he has saved you for a life far better than living for yourself, but to live for the one who made you, to live so others would know him and how good he is. I know it's a hard word, but your life is not about being happy. 
Don't get me wrong. There is happiness in the Christian life. Oh, you bet. Just even in this passage, remember, Paul says that he is glad. And he wants the Philippians to be glad with him. When we hold out the words of life to a dying and needy world, and people respond in faith in Jesus, that is worth celebrating. That is joy uncontainable. That is a reason to burst into tears, to get down on your knees, to thank God, to hug each other, dance even. If I saw my best friends I've known for ages come to know Jesus, I would be ecstatic. If my family came to know Jesus, I should be ecstatic. Rejoicing in lives that are gone from death to life, that is a miracle by the grace and kindness of our King. But the life worth living is not fundamentally about your happiness. But that life is good for you. It's what you were made for. It's good for others whom we're to serve. It's good enough even to die. Because without the words of life that you and I hold out, There is no real, lasting, satisfying hope in this dark world when all they might believe is that my happiness is the most important thing. It is so fleeting. Paul wasn't just saying something theoretical. It wasn't just a nice concept or platitude for him. It was real and practical and lived out for him. And it was too also for Epaphroditus who, whilst partnering with Paul in the work of the gospel, almost died from sickness. This is the messenger that Philippians sent to Paul. So imagine Epaphroditus is a friend who almost died. He is a brother who almost died, a son who almost died. If any one of us here today at Grace Point almost died for the work of the gospel, I'm pretty sure most of us would be there by their bedside in a heartbeat. It was not a theoretical idea. You and I are invited to make that life worth living. For others to see the gospel go out, we're invited to make it a lived reality. You and I probably won't have our heads on the chopping block for living that life, although some of us may, but it does change your priorities. It changes the way that we make decisions. We ask the question, What will advance the work of Jesus in seeing people come to know him? It changes how you spend even your free time, how you spend your money, what you choose to do with your life, the big and the small choices. How much you spend that 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. free time that you might have? Committing to Bible study, committing to your family, committing talking to that friend even though you're pretty tired, It changes the way that you value and celebrate and delight in. Uh, When you value different things like holding your tongue for the other person's sake. Where you celebrate other people who take risks in inviting their friends to church. To delight in meeting with your community group as you wrestle with God's word. As you seek to work out your salvation in fear and trembling together. I don't really know what exactly it will look like for you in your particular life circumstances. But can I say, please don't live like Ivan Illich, who was stuck on the treadmill of what's next, who did the societally polite, completely average, socially normal thing to do, seeking to climb the social ladder before a different type of ladder came and made him realize that there were no more necks. 
Sometimes it's only in the face of death that we consider our life and what a life worth living is. But my prayer and hope is that today you might take a second to consider that there is in Jesus a life worth living, founded on Jesus' salvation of us, where we live out the beautiful outworkings of that salvation, but it takes hard work. It will be good for you, is what you were made for. It's good for others. It's even good enough to die for, as we hold out the word of life to a dying, dark world. It's not a life about our happiness. It's not a life for ourselves at all. And you know what? It probably won't look spectacular. Reading your Bible, praying, meeting with God's people, boring, simple, normal things. But while it may not look spectacular, it is live for a spectacular king where one day the movie of our lives will be shown and our lives will be examined and it will be judged And God will be there and he'll say to his people with the big arms open, big smile on his face, well done, good and faithful servant. And you know what he might even say? God might even say himself, now that was a life worth living. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the king of the universe. Thank you for your great gift of salvation. Please help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Help us to live a life worth living. A life lived for you. A life lived to see others know you. A life lived that makes a real difference. We look forward to the day in heaven where we will see all the people that you saved that you used us to share the gospel with. Help us not to settle for a life of mediocrity, a life lived for self. Give us wisdom to keep thinking about how we might live, how we might change what we love, what we spend our time on, how we make choices. Father, we need your help so very much, and so we ask for your help. Help us to live a life worth living. For you. Amen.